As a pastor, I've had the opportunity to preach the gospel to many people over the years. The good news that though our sin has separated us from God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a man in order to live and die and rise again for our sin. So that whoever trusts in Him alone as their Lord and their Savior is rescued from their sin and reconciled to God forever. It's the, the message that we can have peace with God through the grace of God in Christ Jesus, just as we were reminded of right at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Philippian church in chapter 1, verse 2, where he says, as he does in most of his letters, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I've shared that same message with many people, both inside and outside of the church, I've found that there are two reasons why many reject this good news of grace and peace. Two main reasons why many fail to get right with God through faith alone in His Son. For some, it's the love of evil deeds. It's not wanting to give up their sinful rebellion. You know, I'm just fine with not having God in my life if there even is a God. The last thing I want is with a relationship with someone who's going to tell me what to do. I, I want to do my own thing. Thank you very much. So, so no thank you to the gospel. And that's probably the reason for rejecting the gospel that most of us would expect. But there's another reason, a reason that might surprise some of us, a reason we maybe overlook. And it's this, that for others, it's the love of good deeds and not wanting to give up their self-righteous religion that keeps them from believing the gospel and becoming right with God through Christ alone. Of course I want a right relationship with God, but I'm pretty sure I already have one. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I do a lot of good things. I don't do anything really bad, and I'm very sincere in my religious beliefs and practice. So yeah, I, you know, I've got this covered. The love of evil deeds and the love of good deeds. Sinful rebellion and self-righteous religion, both keep many people from getting right with God through faith in Christ alone. But it's the second reason that Paul specifically addresses in this morning's text, in Philippians 3, 4 to 11, which he feared would keep some of the Philippians from getting right with God and could likewise keep some of us from getting right with God as well. You remember from last week that Paul had warned the Philippian church to look out for a group of false teachers known as the Judaizers who taught that to get right with God, one must have faith in Christ plus follow the old covenant law, particularly circumcision. He then went on to assure the Philippians that it's not actually those who rely on the works of the law, but rather those who renounce all forms of self-righteous works who are truly right with God. As he says at the end of verse 3, those who put no confidence in the flesh, they are the true people of God. He says, for we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
Well, now, using his own conversion experience, Paul expands on this critical truth. Through his own spiritual autobiography, he further emphasizes and exemplifies that to get right with God, we must put no confidence in the flesh. And as we're now going to see, that means, first of all, like Paul, we must recognize our confidence in the flesh. So verse 4, right after saying, I put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, So, when when Paul stated in verse 3 that the true people of God put no confidence in the flesh, he was talking as one who had once put his confidence in the flesh, in his own efforts to get right with God. In fact, if anyone had reason to put confidence in the flesh for relying on his own achievements, it would have been the Apostle Paul. He was the poster boy of Jewish works righteousness. He had all the coveted credentials that many of the Judaizers themselves would not have had. And so, you know, if he wanted to play their self-righteous game, he could have easily beat them all. First, he says, there were four uh, impressive racial credentials that he once relied on. Advantages from birth that he boasted in and that he believed at one time would make him right with God. First, he was circumcised on the eighth day, which means Paul was not a convert to Judaism who was circumcised as an adult. Rather, he was born to Jewish parents who followed the law in Genesis 17 and Leviticus 12. Secondly, he says he was of the people of Israel. So, Paul could trace his roots all the way back to Jacob, to Isaac, to Abraham. And therefore, he was of pure Jewish pedigree, or I like how the King James puts it, of the stock of Israel. You know, if he was alive today and he did one of those genetic genealogy tests, it would come back pure-blooded Jew. Third, he says he was of the tribe of Benjamin. This was the most prestigious tribe uh, that had produced, you remember, Israel's first king, Saul, whom Paul, who used to be named Saul, no doubt had been named after. This was also the tribe who had stayed faithful to the house of David when the kingdom had divided. And then finally, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which most likely refers to how Paul would have known from childhood both the Hebrew language and Hebrew culture, unlike many of the the Hellenized Jews of his day who embraced the prevailing Greek language and culture to the, the chagrin of stricter Jews. That wasn't Paul. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And this is, first of all, what he had once boasted in. He had these impressive racial credentials. And as I was studying that this week, I was reminded of how growing up in a predominantly Mennonite community, I knew some people who similarly boasted in their ethnic heritage, acting as if they were part of God's special people because they had the right last name, they spoke the right language, they ate the right foods, they went to the right church, etc. Though this is certainly something we all 
are susceptible to, aren't we? Maybe it's adding family to our faith, and, and the state of, fam, of our family background somehow influences the state of our faith. And so if our families are tainted in any way, especially in a public sense, we feel like we are lesser Christians. Maybe there was divorce in the family or, or a child who had got into some very public immorality, that sort of thing. And usually it's only when what seems to be maybe a perfect family pedigree is tainted that we realize we've maybe been relying on this somehow. I know as a teenager when my parents suddenly split, I was so ashamed and I thought, well now I'm not this pure Christian, my reputation's been tainted. From now on I will be known as somebody from a broken family. From now on I won't be like what appeared to be all the other perfect families in my church. Perfect families like Paul once boasted in. But then on top of those four impressive racial credentials, there also were these three impressive religious credentials that Paul had also relied on. Not achievements from birth, but achievement from works that he boasted in and believed would make him right with God. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. So he had once been a member of the most strict Jewish sect who meticulously followed all of the old covenant laws as well as thousands of their own traditions. Next, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul was not a nominal half-hearted Jew. No, he was an extreme devotee who even resorted to violence terrorizing Christians who he believed posed a threat to his religion, like the heroic, zealous Maccabees before him. And then finally, this is the most impressive, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. A stunning statement about his faultless external conformity to the law his legalistic righteousness, that, that it just put the finishing touches on his uh, stellar resume. You know, every Judaizer's dream to have these credentials. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, the persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had it all. This impressive racial and religious credentials from birth and from works. So if anyone, if anyone ever was, was good enough to be right with God in the flesh, it was him. Something that he mentioned in another letter in Galatians 1, 13 to 14, where he was dealing with the same group of Judaizers. There he said in chapter 1, 13 to 14, for you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. That was once Paul's confidence in the flesh, which here and elsewhere he now recognized. 
openly admitting that yes, I had at a time, and certainly for him, it still would be maybe a temptation, relied on self-righteous works of the flesh to make myself right with God, just like those Judaizers, he's saying, that I'd earlier warned you about. Now, how about you and I? Do we also recognize our propensity to boast in racial and religious credentials, believing that that somehow they play a part in us being right with God? Has the family we grew up in, the Bible school we attended, the church we are a part of, the service that we've done, has that ever had any bearing in our minds on whether or not we are right with God? It's something we need to consider, you know, not just brush off. Well, yeah, no, of course not, of course not. This is serious because like Paul, we must humbly recognize any confidence we've had in the flesh to be right with God. But that's not all. We go on to see in verse 7 and 8 that like Paul, we must also then renounce any confidence in the flesh. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, the words gain and loss here were business terms in the first century Greco-Roman world, commonly used in the marketplace and finance. This is why the New English translation helpfully reads, but these assets have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. So, Paul in his mind had this profit and loss chart. And and under the the profit gain column, he had this list of these racial and religious credentials that he believed made him right with God. That is, until he met the risen Christ, 30 years before writing this letter on the Damascus Road. When that happened, immediately his, his precious list of racial and religious credentials was transferred from the the gain column to the loss column, from being profits to being liabilities. He became a kind of spiritual auditor who realized after taking another look at the books that all these credentials he had been banking on were in fact in the end worthless and therefore quickly divested himself of all these valueless assets, and he renounced them. He renounced all confidence in the flesh. Now, why would Paul do that? What changed when he encountered the risen Christ? Well, it seems that at that moment, Paul realized he had a critical choice to make. He could either hold on to his self-righteous religion, or he could take hold of the Savior, Christ. It was one or the other. He could not have both. It would be impossible to embrace Christ while he was holding in his arms all of these works, all of these credentials. No, he would have to come to a place where he would take one or the other. He would have to be able to say, as he said earlier in chapter 121, no, I put that aside. To live is Christ and Christ alone. And so, that's what he did. Paul chose Christ. 
moving his credentials from the, the gain column to the loss column. And then it's like he, he took this big red marker and wrote in the entire column, Christ, so that there was no room for anything else. Because as we read on, we see that he actually moved everything to that lost column. Not just this, this list above, but everything other than Christ, he goes on to say in verse 8, was now worthless to him. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So, so we're told now the reason for this radical readjustment in Paul's mind. First, knowing Christ is infinitely better than anything else. Embracing him as God and experiencing all of the blessings of his gospel, in fact, is better than life itself. And remember, Paul, Paul said this earlier in chapter 1, verse 23, when he had before him, he didn't know what was going to happen. Will I be released from prison or will I be executed? And then he makes this statement in chapter 1, 23, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Everything was lost because Christ is far, far better. Some of you might know that old worship song, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, you're my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Nothing compares to Jesus including the self-righteous credentials that we so easily rely on, which Paul says, did you notice, had become as rubbish, an expression uh, used in his day to refer to a number of things, garbage, filth, discarded food, manure, rotting corpses, human excrement. This is a strong word. And Paul's saying once he had encountered the risen Christ and, and embraced his saving death and resurrection, Christ's work on his behalf, Paul realized that all of his works were nothing but refuse, contaminated with his sinful nature, and therefore unable to make him right with God. And that's the other reason for him now it was all loss. It was all rubbish. As the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, 6, we've all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. But then finally, Paul renounced all confidence in the flesh, considering it rubbish, considering it refuse, because it not only failed to get him right with God, but in the end, it had kept him from getting right with God through Christ. It kept him from the only one who could reconcile him to God through faith alone in him, just as self-righteous religion always does. So long again as we're, we're holding all of these works, all these things that we think will please God, we cannot embrace the only one who can truly make us right with God. 
It's just like the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, as we heard earlier. That Pharisee was not justified because all he could see was all the good things he was doing for God and all the ways he wasn't like those people doing bad things. And here comes the tax collector who was justified. Why? Because he knew he had nothing to bring, but simply said, Lord, have mercy on me. And this is why we too must count everything as loss, as rubbish compared to Christ, renouncing all confidence in the flesh like Paul did so that we can be right with God through him. As Paul says in Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like Paul, we must renounce all confidence in the flesh if we are to be right with God. Like the song we sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. But there's one more element to this. Like Paul, we must finally then also replace our confidence in the flesh. As we read from from verse 7 to verse 11, it's very telling that while the first three verses are all about Paul and who he was and what he had done. The last five verses are all about Christ and who he is and what he's done. Again and again, we see Christ, Christ, Christ. And that's because this massive shift of focus had taken place. A massive shift, not only though of focus, but of faith. Paul had replaced his confidence in the flesh with confidence in Christ. And this, we'll see, is what finally made him right with God and what finally makes us right with God as well if we have put all of our confidence in Christ. First, we see in verse 9 that like Paul, we are justified by faith in Christ. Verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen, for anyone to be right with God, we must be righteous before God. That is, we must have a perfect, sinless record to be able to stand before a perfect, sinless God. But of course, none of us are sinless. None of us will stand, therefore, before him, except to be righteously judged for our rebellion, even if we've done many good works. Like any good and just human judge, holy God cannot and will not overlook wrongdoing. No matter how many good deeds we've done, justice demands that evil deeds are punished. And so God will judge us all for our sin, and in the end, send us away from his presence unless we receive by faith the righteous record of Jesus Christ that is counted to us through faith in him. Christ, the one who was punished in our place. Then on the final day, when we stand before God, we will be declared righteous. We will be justified, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that Christ has done for us. And we have simply received as a gift by faith. He who has made sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Like Paul, we are justified by faith in Christ, and that replaces our self-righteous 
confidence in the flesh. But then secondly, like Paul, we are also being sanctified by faith in Christ. Verse 10, Paul goes on to say that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So when Paul replaced his confidence in the flesh with confidence in Christ alone, he not only received the righteousness of Christ, he also received the resurrection power of Christ which enabled him to not only live with God forever, but to live for God right now. Just like Christ, who suffered and died in obedience to his heavenly Father's will. You know, Paul had recognized the suffering of the Philippian church, you remember, for the gospel in chapter 1. But now he reminded them and all Christians that when we suffer for the sake of Christ, we are in fact sharing in the sufferings of Christ. We're following the path of our precious Savior, a momentous privilege that's made possible by the power that raised him from the dead, now at work in all of us who have faith in him and therefore can do all things in him. Remember in in chapter 2, verse 13, where it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Like Paul, we are being sanctified by faith in Christ. But then finally, verse 11, like Paul, we will be glorified by faith in Christ. Paul concludes by what he had replaced his confidence in the flesh with, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now Paul is not expressing doubt here about his future resurrection, but rather it's uncertainty about the timing and circumstances of it. Whether he will die first and be raised later later when Christ comes for his church, or whether he will still be alive at that resurrection when the Lord comes again to catch up believers, as we see in 1 Thessalonians 4. He didn't know. He didn't know when that day would come, and so he wasn't sure whether that would be his resurrection or not. But somehow, as the NIV puts it, he knew he would be glorified because of his trust in Christ. And he makes that very clear later on in verse 20 to 21, where he says, "'Our citizenship is in heaven.'" And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Church, these are the past, present, and future blessings that are ours if we have replaced our confidence in the flesh and put all of our confidence in the risen Christ. And so is that where your confidence lies today? Are you trusting in Him alone, depending on His life, death, and resurrection to make you right with God? A few years ago, a study by Ligonier Ministries found that 36% of self-identified evangelicals agreed with the statement that by the good deeds I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. That's one-third of people sitting in evangelical churches just like our own who believe the exact opposite of what the New Testament clearly teaches, including our text, that to get right with Christ, we must put no confidence in the flesh. That is very concerning. 
And I'll say, as your pastor, it makes me concerned for you. That some of you might also be confused and that your confidence might be misplaced. That when you stand before holy God one day and he asks you why he should allow you into his perfect holy presence, you a sinner into heaven, that you will say, well, God, I mean, I I believed in Jesus, plus I was raised in a godly family. I went to church. I was baptized. I took communion. I read my Bible. I said my prayers. I served on committees. I did a short-term missions trip. A lot of other good deeds. So, So we're good, right? What a dreadful shock it will be when God looks at those who answer like this, who put their hope for heaven in themselves, or put their hope in heaven in Christ plus themselves. And he says, your confidence has been misplaced. Your name is not written in the book of life. Your self-righteous religion kept you from me. I never knew you. Depart from me. Church, this is serious business. To get right with God, we must put no confidence in the flesh. Rather, we must put all of our confidence in Christ alone, just as the Apostle Paul did, counting all of our good deeds as loss, as rubbish, utterly useless in attaining or retaining a relationship with God. But rather, we must confess with Paul, I have no righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but only that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So is that what you confess today? Is your confidence in Christ alone? Are you convinced that It's not in any way what you can do for Christ, but what Christ has fully done for you, that you can be right with God now and forever. Martin Luther once visited a dying seminary student at his bedside, and he asked the young man what he should take to God when he passed away. Everything that is good, the young man replied, I will take to God everything that is good. Surprised at the answer, the father of the Protestant Reformation who championed the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, said, but but how can you bring to him everything good, seeing that you are but a poor sinner? Dear father, the student replied, I will take to my God in heaven only a repentant and humble heart sprinkled with the blood of Christ. To this, Luther exclaimed, truly, this is everything good. Then go, dear son, you will be a welcome guest of God. Let us pray for the same humble, repentant heart that clings to Christ alone. Lord, we're thankful again for your word, and we're thankful for this particular text where Paul, through his own example, reminds us of this vital truth that we have nothing to bring to you, nothing we can possibly contribute 
to our salvation, to being made right with you. It is only Christ and what he has done for us. Everything else is lost. Everything else is rubbish. Oh, Lord, I pray that all of us would understand this truth and that we would be putting our full confidence in Christ alone so that we could receive his righteousness and be in your presence now and forever as your people. Lord, humble us. Give us faith in Christ and Christ alone. And we pray this in his name. Amen. And by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit abide with you now and forever. Go in his grace and go thankful for all that he has done. Amen.